Mm-hmm. All righty, tight fans. Welcome to another week here at the University of Alabama Adapted Athletics Podcast. And as always, I am your host, Brian Powers, and I have my co-host, Mr. Sean Burns, here with me today. Coach, how you doing? Doing well. Glad to be here. Hey, I'm glad to have you here. Man, how did you, first and foremost, everybody that's listening up, you all had a great Thanksgiving. Um, Coach, did you have a great Thanksgiving? I did. I had a good Thanksgiving, man. I, uh, I enjoyed the post-Thanksgiving. Got to go to the Iron Bowl, stuff like that. So, had a good time. Yeah. Yeah, you got to go to the Iron Bowl, and, I mean, obviously, that ended pretty well. And, uh, you know, Alabama is going to remain the uh, – obviously, they're going to remain as the number one team in the country uh, this week. Hey, do you know what – you know who else is number one? Who else is number one, Mr. Powers? Number one is RGK, and every chair that they make is unique to suit the requirements and individ- individuality of each of their users. They have the highest quality materials – and offer the lightest chairs on the market. Their team of mobility advisors can take you through the assessment process to create your perfect chair. And we are excited to have RGK hosting our podcast this week. So uh, thank them for doing that. Uh, but yeah, so let's get down to it. So this is really our first week of, you know, no, no events going on um, with us. There's obviously some events going on around campus. Uh, well, I say around campus, I guess more in Asheville, North Carolina, as the Tide is competing over in the uh, Maui Invitational. Uh, they struggled a little bit in game one. Um, Tuesday night, or excuse me, Monday night, but uh, they uh, play UNLV tonight. because We are recording on Tuesday night, so uh, I hope that they get, uh, get things rolling and get things back together and get it on track. You know, I was really excited when we had Nate Oates on one of our previous podcasts, and I know that just based off our conversations with him, him talking a little bit about, uh, you know, uh, there were some days I couldn't tell if we were really good on defense and really bad on <laughs> offense or really bad on offense and really good on defense. So uh, I know that he's going to get them turned around and ready to go. Um, but, yeah, so, uh, Coach, we have a pretty pretty cool guest on this week. Uh, we have the divisional president for the National Wheelchair Basketball Association Intercollegiate Division, uh, Doug Jones. Um, Doug Jones is, you know, he, like I said, he is the divisional president for the NCAA. Uh, he has had a pretty remarkable career. I'm sitting here looking at his resume. Um, that is something else. And then also, um, one of the cool things talking with our athletic director, Dr. Harden, did you know that he, and he actually got Dr. Harden into wheelchair basketball? Oh, really? No, I actually did not know that. I know that yeah, he, so I was talking with Dr. Harden. He said that uh, he was at uh, the University of Florida. Uh, it was his first job, and he said that he was there late at night, and he had already been working, uh, like, kind of in adapted athletics. Like, that was already his career field. And that he heard the team going by late at night out of one of his office because he had worked it in uh, one of the arenas. And uh, and he said he went in there, met the team, met him, and that, that following week he was uh, helping coaching. So uh, he's yeah. So he said that's where he got his start. So pretty cool there. Uh, cool ties to the university, obviously, with our athletic director. So uh, really excited about that interview. Yeah, coach. So you know we discussed a little bit with uh, Coach Ford. I know, but is uh, is what you're going to be doing this break and this uh, and moving into the spring going to be uh, you know really anything different than what you've done in the past? Um. 
The only real difference is it's a uh, two weeks longer. So normally we would come back from Thanksgiving. We'd have a week of practice and maybe a couple games that fall that weekend, you know, going into dead week um, this year, you know, with, you know, university rules and, you know, all the students staying home. Uh, we will just be doing film this week, like I said before. Um, and then, you know, some academic meetings and then, for the most part, like it, it's, it's the same. The guys have their workout places set up home. Um, so they can, you know, some, some people will be able to shoot in a gym. Some people won't just depends on, you know, state regulations and things like that, but everybody will be able to work out, you know, coach Wright has given them all either, um, you know, a gym packet or if they need one, he'll write them up like a home workout, just like they had, uh, you know, during the lockdown. So they'll just use, you know, stuff at home, whatever weights they have body weight, workouts, things like that. Um, they'll be able to stay busy. So uh, this next two weeks, it's really important for them to just focus on their school and get, um, you know, get their grades right going into finals. And then um, after that, they can focus a little bit more. And I think most of them will, you know, kind of switch gears um, after that kind of week off to, you know, working out every day again and, and things like that. I know a bunch of them have already started and, you know, we got a lot of motivated kids. So, uh, we don't, we're not too worried about them for that. Yeah. And I know, uh, there were a couple that I, I, we were excited about seeing there against, you know, UTA and Auburn, and we didn't discuss it too much with coach Ford, but I'm excited yeah. about getting to see a couple of these guys, uh, yeah. moving, moving forward into the spring, like you were talking about the, the work ethic, you know, yeah. I, I've, I've been really impressed with, uh, really each and every single one of them, uh, They've they've came to work and, you know, that's that's relieving to see. And 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 also one of the things is I love the camaraderie. I've, I probably have said this a ton, but like there's that inner competition, but it's not a competition of like, oh, I'm better than you. It's that competition of like, I'm going to push you and make you the best you that you can be. Right. Um, yep. And and that's one thing that I've really enjoyed and appreciated it. Um, but, yeah, so uh, once again, Tide fans, we've got an awesome interview coming up for you guys, and it's going to be with uh, Mr. Doug Jones. Once again, Doug Jones is the divisional president of the National Wheelchair Basketball Association Intercollegiate Division. So uh, we hope that you uh, enjoy that, and uh, here's our interview now. All righty, Tide fans. So welcome to our interview here with uh, Mr. Doug Jones. Uh Mr. Jones, how you doing today? I'm good, and you? I'm uh, doing doing awesome. Can't complain. Uh, how, did you have a good Thanksgiving? I, I have. It's a little bit cold here in Gainesville, Florida, but uh, um, at least by Florida standards. But uh, but yeah, nice. You know, nice few days off and the usual turkey feast. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. So um, just sitting here, you sent us over a resume. But you know, I know a little bit about you. Not a so my, by the way, you have one of the most impressive resumes I've ever seen in my entire life. I just want to go ahead and give you that. Uh, and, you know, uh, for those that listen there for our intro, he is uh, Mr. Jones is the uh, divisional president for the National Wheelchair Basketball Association Intercollegiate Division. Um, if you want to, uh, Mr. Jones, could you go into a little bit more about you for those that may not know you? Uh, for me personally? Yes, sir. Yeah, sure. I'm, um, uh, you know, I, I was a player for a bunch of years. I'm a you know, paraplegic, so I played uh, beginning, you know, back in uh, in the 80s and um, I played most of my career either in uh, Florida, a few years with the Fresno Red Rollers and probably most of the most 
productive years with the Dallas Wheelchair Mavericks. Um, after my playing days, I, I coached the Mavericks for six or eight years. And then from that point on, moved into just doing more of the administrative things. I'm really passionate about the um, importance of having an intercollegiate division and growing that division. So the opportunity to transition from playing and coaching into something that helps build uh, better opportunities for persons with disabilities was, was very appealing to me. And I've been doing that. This is my last year doing that, but I think it's maybe been eight or 10 years. Awesome. Yes, sir. And um, you, you mentioned, you talked a little bit there about your playing and coaching days and you have nine national championships nine, under your belt as a player and coach, as well as, you know, two world club championships. Um, you know, what was it like having that excess on the, on the court and collegiately and kind of like uh, internationally as well? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, uh, I always tell young players when they have the for good fortune of being on good teams as young players um, to, to not take that for granted. Um, you know, a lot of times when things are going well, you feel like you're going to get on a really good run and, and always have these opportunities. And, you know, and the reality is, um, you know, it's, it's hard to, to sustain success. You know, I mean, building it as a team is, is challenging enough, but sustaining it year in and year out is, you know, is something that, uh, that to me is, is most impressive. And, and that's why, you know, when I watch uh, able-bodied sports, I'm, you know, I'm impressed, even as a University of Florida graduate, I'm impressed with, with uh, Nick Saban and, and what's been able to happen at the University of Alabama. And, you know, and for the years that the New England Patriots, uh, you know, have, have been dominant. So, um, so I think the key to it is, is finding something that keeps you energized and motivated so that you don't get complacent you know, I mean, there's always going to be somebody who is, uh, who you're the, you know, what they aspire to, to, to beating. And, um, and if they have a level of, um, of motivation, that's, that's greater than yours, uh, then they're going to close the clap gap progressively until, until they do beat you. Yeah, no, I, 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 I that's the first thing I saw, because I see here, like, it, it almost is like consecutive years seemingly and I'm just sitting there and to me like you've talked a little bit about you know the Nick Saban factor and you know like the page mm -hmm. that to me is like the most impressive thing anybody can do and, and uh, you know I didn't play collegiately or anything like that any sort of sports and I was just simply a manager my first year here and to mm -hmm. see what it takes at Alabama to see what it takes mm -hmm. as you know as for the athletes and everything that they put into it whether it be on the on the in the classroom on the court weight room whatever it is everything that it takes to get just to the national championship game. It's impressive when people are able to sustain that. So it's, yeah. it's incredible what you did with your playing career, as well as with your coaching career. And, um, you know, we had, uh, I don't know if you listened to our podcast with uh, Nate Oates, who is uh, one of the coaches here on campus at Alabama. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed listening to him was talking about those who have made an impact on his career and mm -hmm. things like, who would you say that has kind of, been that been say somebody or that those people that have helped you and made that impact for you on your career well that's a, you know that's a great question um, personally i i usually focus on the people who i've actually known well and worked with and the impact that they've had i mean i think we all have people who we might admire whether it's a bill russell or a michael jordan you know who who inspires us in some way 
Um, but for me, the people that really have the biggest impact are the people who, who you know personally. Right. Um, I think early on for me, when I, when I first began playing wheelchair basketball, there were um, some guys that were uh, older than me. They were Vietnam veterans. Uh, Bill Richardson, John Johnston were guys who had a, a passion for the game and were people that despite having a disability, the disability wasn't the most defining feature of who they were. You know, the most defining feature was that they were competitive personalities. So, um, so they were role models for me, not only in terms of, of playing basketball, but also in terms of how to approach, you know, being a person with a disability, you know, in, yes. in I'll say today's world, but, but back then, you know, this was before ADA even. So it was, it was a, a different dynamic even then. So those guys were, were important uh, role models to me. Um, uh, Marv McMillan was a was a coach that I had early on who who I think um, focused on the right types of things. He he kind of taught me that, you know, if you take care of the process and do the things that you need to do each step of the way and don't get ahead of doing the, the small things right, right. Um, the rest of it ends up taking care of itself. Um, so those are, are a few of the people, you know, there's certainly been players that I've played with and admired in terms of their, how they handle themselves uh, as, as athletes. Um, Randy Snow um, was a guy that I admired for being uh, a really uh, strong and important player on teams, um, but approaching it in a way that, um, that made players around him better. Uh, Reggie Colton, very much the same way. Both of those guys were guys who, who didn't need to beat their own drum at all you know, um, and, and in fact, the things that they did on the court that made players around them better um, in the big picture made them e even more uh, significant uh, influences for me. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. You know, I, I hear one, one of the things that I always like hearing is, is, you know, people that are able to always seem to seem to make big impacts. They talk about, you know, a process, whether it doesn't matter, you know, but it's always making sure you do the little things and, mm -hmm. and how significant the little things are. And I always, it's crazy how people that are able to have that impact on folks and, uh, and have that success. And that's, you know, be able to provide the significance, you know, that's what they really kind of preach. And that's one of the things they focus on. So that's, that's always to me in, incredible to hear. Um, and, you know, and, and, and let me interject, if I might, yeah, there, you yeah, know, one of Malcolm Gladwell's books, you know, um, called The Tipping Point, you know, he talks about anybody who becomes elite at anything. OK, and it, it translates clearly to sports, even though his point wasn't just around sports. Um, they've done that thing a thousand times. You know, if you're going to be a good, you know, and clearly some people are better natural free throw shooters than others, but if you really want to be someone who making free throws is absolutely automatic, you, you have to shoot a thousand of them, you know, right. and, and uh, it's that, it's that repetition, not just for your body, but for your brain that, that, that helps you remove any things that are distractions, uh, you know, from the process. And then, and then you, you're in autopilot and you do your thing. Yes, sir. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's like, it's, uh, you know, and it, it kind of that, that, that process, like that thought process always reminds me of Kobe Bryant and, and, you know, the, those greats that you always hear in any sort of sport that they do, it's just the repetition, repetition, repetition. And, um, you know, 
So kind of kind of to backtrack just a little bit, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, as a player and coach for you, you know, here in Alabama, we have a couple guys that have now gone from players to coaches for you. What was that transition like going from that player to a coach? Yeah, you know, it was um, I was very anxious about it the year that I did it, the you know, the season before um, the the leadership and the team had talked to me about about making that transition and you know, I, I kind of smiled because at that point I wasn't sure whether they were more interested in getting me off of the court <laughs> or getting me into a leadership role. But um, um, I was afraid that I would that I would miss being on the court, you know, even in a, a role playing type of a capacity. Um, but it ultimately worked out very, very well for me. Um, the other thing that potentially made it a, um, a special challenge was I began being the coach for players that I had been a teammate with. You know, it's a little different when you when you begin your coaching career with a group of athletes that are not the athletes who were were teammates of yours. And uh, and um, you know, that first year coaching, you know, the first month or two, um, you know, we had moments. I remember one of them to where um, you know I made a uh, we were struggling in one of the games and I made a substitution and. Um, and I don't know if he'll remember this as well, but but Willie Hernandez, who's a, an incredibly talented player and a great guy, um, came out of the game because I, I switched to a lineup that was three threes, a two and a one, and our, class, our classification system was a little bit different back then, which meant that Willie, as a class two, was coming off of the court. And, um, and he just kind of shook his head at me like, bad decision, you know? And, uh, and we went on and, and thank goodness, it worked out wonderfully. You know, we we uh, got back in a rhythm. We substituted back to the lineup that included Willie, which was was our typically strongest lineup. Um, and I give him a lot of credit because when the game was over, um, and I maybe he would have been the same win or lose, but he did uh, find a moment to catch me and and say, you know what, that was a, a good coaching decision, and and I'm sorry I questioned it. And that moment helped me turn the corner in terms of. Um, uh, you know, of getting beyond those types of tough decisions. And I think anybody who coaches will tell you um, it is much more difficult than any of us imagine when we're players or when we're watching on TV. You know, it's, it's easy to say what I would have done. <laughs> right. Hindsight's 2020. And also beyond that, there's all of the dynamics that go into coaching a team. You know, you're not always coaching for that minute in the game in terms of, or even for that game, a lot of times you're coaching to build, uh, you know, a better team, you know, for what's going to happen down the road. So balancing all of that, factoring in how certain players are motivated compared to how other players are motivated. um, It's a, it's both a skill and an art. And, um, and I, uh, um, and, and I do appreciate um, right. more the coaches in my past once I became a coach right. than, than I probably did when I was a player. <laughs> no, absolutely. No, you're right. Um, and, you know, you've now continued that su- the success here with, like I, like I had previously said, you're the, you're the divisional president for the intercollegiate division. You know, what, what, what was that change? Like going from now you're, you're not necessarily on the court as much, obviously as a player. Now you're, you're the president of the whole division. You know, what, what has that been like for you? 
Um, you know, again, I, I think I've been really blessed throughout my career to, to, to have had some success and to have made transitions at the right point in time. Right. Um, I had been away from the game for a couple of years um, when I got a call from the, the person that was the commissioner of the, or not the commissioner, the executive director of the NWBA, you know, back in, I guess it was 2012, probably. Um, and um, asking me, you know, a, a about taking on that role. And I had gotten a, a, a voicemail and, and I missed the call. And so I went home and, um, and I told my wife, I said, you know, I said, I have a call from uh, Randy Schubert at the NWBA. And, you know, I don't know what he's calling me about, but, you know, I'm pretty sure that I'm not going to be interested because, you know, I'm very comfortable with my life. I'm very comfortable right. with my legacy. I'm, I, I like the time that I've been able to spend with, you know, with my kids and family. Um, but I had no idea what he was calling about. So the next day when I spoke to him and he described the opportunity and, and uh, the division, um, it, it actually appealed immediately to me. And, right. and um, you know, and basically we've, we had and have had a, a very good intercollegiate division in terms of, of talented players and, and some programs doing great things. Um, but the challenge at that point was that we needed to grow the division and the division was led then and, and still to some great degree is led by a council of all of the coaches. Um, and it's difficult for that to happen because even when people are trying hard to be big picture, if you have a dog in the fight, it's right. hard to make decisions that, you know, that impact maybe the big picture well, but not your program that well. Right. So the, the goal at that point was to, was to insert a few um, leaders into the division who did not have a team. Um, uh, what Randy said to me is he said, I think it needs to be someone who is, um, um, who's known enough Right. You know, to to have some level of of respect going in, you know, but doesn't have, you know, a dog in the fight and somebody who, who's organized as, you know, as an administrator and in those fit me. So I was I was able to join at the perfect time because Josie Johnson uh, came on as the vice president and she uh, also somebody who very um, great background in wheelchair basketball, very rational, very fair. Um, John Burford, um, you know, was the uh, commissioner and I had known John from his days as a referee. Um, he also has a, a, a law background and is right. very rational. So, um, so all of a sudden I went from, I doubt I'm going to be interested to, this is one of the most important things right. <laughs> that we can do. And, and so we set out to try and, and, and help create some consistency, uh, insulate the coaches a little from each other in terms of of you know the natural competitive edge right. that they all have when they're when they're right. dealing with each other, um, and to try and grow the division. So you know it's been a, a a long and it's not an easy process growing the division, um, but but we've had I feel like pretty good success in a lot of ways in terms of of standardizing things that we do, creating as equitable of a situation as we can when you look at the differences between the schools, we have everything from, um, you know, from schools that are, that are tier one uh, 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 research institutions, you know, right. like Alabama, like the University of Illinois, you know, to, to other excellent schools, but are from smaller 
you know, types of uh, arrangements, um, Edinburgh, um, Southwest Minnesota State, you know, uh, very different types of institutions. And add in the dynamic that some of the teams reside administratively within athletics at their institution. Others reside within um, campus rec sports and others reside within the Disability Resource Center. So there's a lot of moving parts and the overall goal of creating an equitable, competitive circumstance um, is, you know, is a, uh, a challenge uh, right. and, and one that I think we've, um, that we've done pretty well at. Yes, sir. No, absolutely. I mean, I think you, you see that, you know, I, you know, like I said, so I've been with the Alabama program now for three years. And I mean, year one, you know, uh, we had, I think it was the, it was our national championship year uh, here recently. But then you have, you know, Whitewater always competing. You have UTA always competing, you know, the men's and you have Illinois always. I mean, the, you have all these schools always competing. So I, I completely agree with what you're saying about how it's a competitive, even like you were talking about the different circumstances, it's still, mm -hmm. everybody is still always competitive and that's awesome to see all around. Mm -hmm. And um, you talked a little bit of, about actually one of the, my next few, the, these next few questions that I had. Um, and it, it, it involved growing the sport, uh, you know, nationally and, and mm -hmm. through say like the media and, and, you know, getting more coverage. And I, I wanted to ask you because I did a, uh, a guest speaker uh, type deal here on at Alabama and, you know, the students were able to ask me questions. And that was one of the questions that was asked to me. And, and mm -hmm. I was just kind of like, you know, I'm not really sure because mm -hmm. like, I just, you know, didn't necessarily have the experience and the, and the background to really know what really to give them a, a great answer. Um, so I kind of want to ask you that, you know, what, what do you think the, the sport can do and, and say people in your position can do to help grow the sport in the U S and, and kind of provide more media attention to our, to all the adaptive programs here in the U S and stuff. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great question. And I think when you look at the biggest picture of the NWBA, the answer might be a little different. And if you look at each of the divisions, you know, the juniors right. division, the community team division, um, those may be a little different than the intercollegiate division in terms of, you know, so the first piece is you have to identify what your message is, you know, yep. and, and in some instances, people promote and support the sport in a way that, you know, isn't this a really um, um, nice opportunity for yep. people with special needs? And it is. Um, Others are going to market in terms of this is an exciting, highly competitive, right. um, amazingly athletic sport yeah, that absolutely. is fun to watch. And, um, and that's where we have to go with the intercollegiate division. We have um, many, uh, you know, I'm not going to say most because there's some very talented athletes that are not in the intercollegiate division and, and the athletes that move from the intercollegiate division to club sport teams um, are still talented athletes. But top to bottom, roster to roster, the intercollegiate division has has a lot of very gifted athletes. And um, so we have something to market that way. If we can get people to, to see a game, um, they're often going to see, you know, more games. So uh, so one good thing for us in that regard is that the the people that play the sport are mostly, um, you know, 22 to 18 years old, maybe a few that are a little bit older. Um, so they're all proficient in social media. 
So, you know, we, we, it's a little easier for us to push out things in that right. way, um, for it to grow organically in that group. Right. And that builds a fan base in that age group, not necessarily in, 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 in age groups that are beyond that. Um, the second piece is I think, I think each team has to find a way in their own campus to, to become as relevant as possible right. in that. And that includes things like working with the academic programs on that campus that have a logical connection, right. uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, rehabilitation counseling, mm-hmm. um, uh, engineering, you know, for adaptive equipment, adaptive um, physical education, all of those types of programs should have a natural interest because they have a, a case study, they have a, a right. laboratory um, of persons with disabilities, you know, um, right on their campus that are parts of teams. And as you do that, you end up attracting in graduate students for research projects, you attract in um, uh, other people that are that are beyond that first circle of the athletes and their roommates, you know? So, so I think those, those are, are things that are important to do. I think the NWBA has made really nice strides by, um, by expanding out the, uh, who are corporate sponsors for, for the NWBA and historically and, and happily, you know, it has been wheelchair manufacturers, um, durable medical product companies, because they, you know, that's who they want to, to, to attract as customers. Right. And, and that's wonderful. But now you see, you know, Toyota is a, is a major sponsor for the NWBA um, in uh, Molten Basketballs, you know, uh, you know, so, so the, the scope of who's interested broadens more rapidly into the able-bodied community. Right. Um, and then for me in the intercollegiate division, um, and this is, a, we're kind of at a precipice right now of, yeah. of whether we get to make a decision on that. Um, that's, that, that's a decision that I would consider favorable personally. And that's um, uh, making the sport even more inclusive by permitting able-bodied athletes to compete as class 4.5s. You know, we did a, a, a three-year pilot study. And by doing that, we actually grew opportunities for persons with disabilities, but for several reasons. One, we were able to have, to field more teams. You know, you have to reach critical mass on a campus. You know, you have to yep. have 10 people who can play and wanna play right. and are academically eligible and right. athletically talented, you know? And it's not quite like field of dreams. You know, it's not so much if you build it, they will come. Right. You've gotta have a certain critical mass on those campuses to have it happen. And as long as the able-bodied athletes play as 4.5s, um, it generates opportunities for one 1.0s and 1.5s. Right. You know, it, it creates a little bit of a difference there, um, but it also gives teams the opportunity to have 12 or 14 at practice where they have greater options of how to, how to run practice. Mm-hmm. Um, it connects more people on that campus. And, and maybe, honestly, the most important piece is that young people today, mm-hmm. they wanna live in an inclusive world. And an inclusive world means uh, both persons with disabilities and, and able-bodied persons. There's, there's, um, they're ready to move beyond this attitude of protectiveness, you know, that we can't allow able-bodied people because they'll take advantage of disabled people or they'll displace disabled people. And, uh, and that 
you know, we're, I think we're at a point societally to where in, in many, not every case, but in many cases, uh, we can move beyond that type of thinking. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm, I'm with you 100%. You know, I think that has always been kind of one of the things, you know, here recently for me that, that I love seeing and hearing and, you know, just talking to the athletes. It's just like, like, you'll, you'll, I've met people that were on previous teams and, the, and you know, it's just surprising that, like, and that they all had like the same feelings that they're like, yeah, like, it's like, we don't really necessarily have a problem with that kind of stuff. Like, they're all for it. And, um, you know, and we, now that we're kind of discussing also, you know, about you were talking a little bit about you know able able-bodied people playing in wheelchair basketball you know um the university of florida where you're at uh y'all y'all have a, a program up and start program coming up now um and one of the things that i have always been really curious about you know what is it that you think is most important you know we talked a little bit about finding you know those programs on campus to mm-hmm. kind of you know that can be an end, an obvious end with you and stuff for your program. But what do you think is in, important for these universities who maybe are kind of on the precipice of wanting to start a program, but they're a little bit hesitant about what, what would you encourage them to do whenever it comes to doing that? Uh, but create some type of an entity that exists, whether it's a, you know, a club sport team, whether it's a, just a student organization, and begin consistently and steadily doing something as a group. You know, you can't let perfection be the enemy of progress. So even if year one, you know, is a group of of eight people, you know, practicing, learning some skills and playing four on four, and and five of the eight are able-bodied, that's a step in the right direction. You know, and when we... uh, 20 years ago in the University of Florida campus when we would play, um, we had six or seven persons with disabilities and a team, but practice was impossible. So we incorporated um, able-bodied University of Florida football athletes back then, even including uh, Emmett Smith is a well-recognized name. He played wheelchair basketball with us. You know, Alex Brown, who played for the Bears, a, a lot of of those guys because they're athletic and competitive. Right. They came out, you know, it took them a little while, but a month or two in, they're talking trash and, yeah. and, and, you know, roughing people up. So, um, so now with this more recent iteration of the University of Florida's team, it, it's still a majority this year of, of able-bodied persons. Right. Um, but you have to have a regular opportunity in order to attract, you know, people both to campus and to practice, you know, it, it uh, you know, it has to be happening every Tuesday and Thursday or whatever it right. is, um, you know, so that it can gain that type of momentum. Then secondarily, make those connections again to the academic units that can provide some support. Right. Um, um, make inroads and build relationships with with uh, whoever it is that controls your facilities, whether it's campus recreation or or the athletic association, um, find ways for the activity to be both non-threatening in terms of, uh, uh, you know, to people, you know, sometimes people are concerned that if they, um, 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 that you're going to um, take um, gym time away from from other people um, or that you're going to 
uh, begin asking for large sums of money that they don't have, you know, so, right. um, so, you know, you need to be, have a plan and be steadily persistent a step at a time, a step at a time, um, but do it in a way that is co as collegial as, as is possible. Um, you really need to find, get as many people under the tent as you can that are allies. And anybody who is in opposition to it, um, really trying to understand what it is they oppose about it. Right. And, um, and then try and address that rationally and, and, and convert them to supporters. Um, and understand that is, it will take some period of time, you know, to, right. A, to get to a point of fielding a legal team and then another several years to be to be comp legitimately competing for championships. Yes, sir. Absolutely. And uh, you know, speaking of championships, I got one last question for you here. You know what? What are you? Uh, what are What are your expectations? You know, moving forward with the you know the spring season and uh, you know the national championship tournament. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. You know, and it's. Um, uh, you know, it's a question that everybody is asking in the able-bodied and in the uh, disability sport world. Right. Um, you know, we're, we've, we've watched carefully what the able-bodied um, athletes have done in the fall, um, you know, in the sports that have competed football as an example. Um, I think one thing we've learned from that is that, um, uh, you know, and I want to measure my words because I know this is sometimes a highly politicized type of, type of a yes, topic. Sir, yeah. Um, I think we've found that athletes being a part of an organized program to where what they do is managed a little and there's te regular testing that's happening um, are in fact not at any greater danger than the athletes who are not competing. In fact, I would venture a guess that if we look at the incidences of positive tests, um, uh, they're probably lower among um, homogenous groups of athletes than among the student body in general. Um, so, uh, you know, and I know that there's more to it than that because it affects coaches, officials, whether you have fans in the stands and so forth. But as a starting point, I think that's an important piece to understand. Secondarily, um, you know, the, I, I look at the data every day and in the United States of America, there are 100 million people who are 25 years old or younger. You know, there's 330 million Americans, 100 million of them 25 or under. Um, and the, as of November 18th, the number of COVID related fatalities, not cases of course, but fatalities um, in that age group was 501. So, so the likelihood of a COVID related death in athletic, population of people 25 and younger is a is a pretty long shot you know a, a very very long shot now i do understand as well that there's ramifications beyond that group again coaches fans and getting a virus even if it doesn't kill you is not a good thing <laughs> but but i think that perspective coupled with the benefits of of needing to return to some level of normalcy and, and venturing out and, and being active because of the other health-related implications um, are important considerations. So that drives us to creating as safe of an environment as we can within the context of resuming play. 
and so that's what we've what we've tried to do. And and we've just published a um, a uh, intercollegiate division shared commitment to COVID safety um, document. And that document, uh, everybody uh, provided input on. Uh, uh, we made five drafts till we got to the point where we are now. Um, we were blessed to have support from uh, 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 from the, uh, uh, Dr. Robinson there at, uh, at the University of Alabama and, and medical, uh, the trainers at Auburn University, uh, in addition to input from the medical staffs at, at a number of the other colleges and universities. So our document created a baseline. It says everybody collectively will agree to these about 20 things, you know, on testing, on distancing players, on masking, all of those types of things. We acknowledge also though, that there could be additional restrictions. You know, if we play like our national tournament's gonna be at the University of Wichita or Wichita State University, I'm sorry. Um, and they may have additional requirements. Right. You know, so our shared commitment document is a baseline. Right. Um, but we think that helps everyone have some level of assurance that you're not going to go play in a tournament and face a team that has been completely right. unconcerned you know, right. and, yes, and not careful. And it yes. also, I think, gives the decision makers at all 17 of our programs some level of comfort and cover that there's an a level of intentionality that is being um, deployed you know, as we return right. to play. Um, you know, the tournament uh, that, that was the um, November 10th weekend, you know, that was played um, in the aftermath of that, you know, all each of the intercollegiate teams that participated um, tested, you know, the, uh, the week after and, um, and we had no, no cases. Right. So, um, so it was a uh, big success and a relief, right. <laughs> you know, that, right. that what the, the, you know, that in that instance, uh, we had good results. And it doesn't mean that we won't ever have a case, but it does mean that that we're on the right track. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And, and you know, I hope that everybody listening to this and listening through this whole interview, uh, this has been one of the more informative interviews I think we've had, and I've really appreciated it. And I really hope everybody else that, you know, listens really appreciates it because we were able to, with you, I think we were able to touch base on a lot of things that we've not necessarily been able to touch base on. And I think it's been, it's going to be a good inside look for people, maybe even outside the realm of uh, the wheelchair basketball that, you know, Hey, you know, this is what they're trying to do. This is their mission. Uh, we're hoping that's a big part of this podcast is and what we're trying to do. And and we're glad that you came on because I've absolutely really enjoyed this. I wish, mm -hmm. wish we had, you know, way more time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but you know, we, we like to have you back on. If you ever want to come back on, we, we'd yeah. love to have you back on, you know, we really appreciate uh, you taking the time out of your day and, and joining mm -hmm. us here. Well, yeah, I, I'm happy to come anytime. And, um, you know, uh, Anybody who does see it that wants information about the, the, the 17 programs we have, you know, we have a, a coach's contact list that, you know, if they reach out to me through you or, you know, right. or, or directly to me at, at Noah and Doug, just D-U-G-J-O-N-E-S, the number 11 at gmail.com. Um, I'll send them that so they can contact local local teams. If they have an interest in launching a team, we probably have six or eight that are, that are on the verge of, of launching. 
Um, if they're interested in our shared commitment document, happy to share that as well. So uh, thanks for having me and, and I'll look forward to, to doing it again when we have an opportunity. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Thank you for joining in. My pleasure. All right. Have a good one. You too. All right, tight fans. Uh, once again, we really hope you enjoyed that interview there with uh, the Vision One Intercollegiate President, Doug Jones. Um, it was awesome to have Mr. Jones come on and do a podcast with us here. Um, we're looking forward to getting to have him back on. Uh, I know we talked to, I talked to him a little bit there about coming up back on around the time for the national championship tournament. So hopefully we're able to bring him on around then. Um, you know, hopefully everything is staying on course. He did say that they have kind of come out with uh, some information to be viewed and that people can kind of look at uh, if they're curious as to how we're going to be moving forward uh, with the tournament um, in the sense of the COVID situation. So uh, that was awesome to hear. And I think the entire uh, interview, at least from, in my opinion, was absolutely awesome. I think it was incredibly informative. Um, I think Mr. Jones, from his playing career to his coaching career to now uh, as a more administrative role in the, in the collegiate division, you know, I think it's incredible as to what he has done for the sport and what he continues to do in that mission of, you know, really trying to continue to uh, grow the sport. I think it was awesome that he kind of gave a little bit of a inside look of how they want uh, each, you know, collegiate uh, school to grow the sport themselves and, and even kind of breaking it down to, you know, there are other divisions, so how they can help potentially grow the sport as well. So it was really cool to get to hear and hear that side of everything from him. Um, once again, Ty fans, we just really hope that you enjoyed this. Um, I know I've, I've enjoyed it, and uh, we uh, this podcast has been absolutely awesome for me, and we hope that you have uh, enjoyed the podcast as well. Uh, I believe, based off our conversations here, I think we're going to have one or two more podcasts here coming up before Christmas, and then we're going to take a two-week break, about a week to two-week break, um, and then we're going to come back uh, the first week in January as of right now. Obviously, um, for our final one here uh, in the next two weeks, we'll let you all know. So that way you can kind of prepare to be really disappointed about not getting to have a podcast for a couple weeks. I know that's going to be tough for you guys. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we really uh, appreciate you all continuing to tune in. We appreciate your support. Uh, we're incredibly excited and happy uh, about, one, how this fall ended, that we were able to do eight home events, and then that we're uh, moving forward in a positive direction in the spring. Um, we hope that uh, you are all able to uh, tune in moving forward on our live stream for our events coming up in the spring. And uh, once again, thank you all for continuing to listen to our podcast. Uh, thank you and roll tide.